Welcome to the Providence Health Coaching Podcast. My name is Colleen Kuhn, registered dietitian and health coach. And my name is Will Bruce, and I am a certified personal trainer and health coach. This podcast is focused on helping you create sustainable lifestyle changes by first identifying your values and needs, and then transforming your goals into action. In this podcast, we'll discuss all the things you need to know to succeed with making healthy lifestyle changes. We'll cover behavior change psychology, effective goal setting, and how to stay motivated, as well as healthy nutrition, exercise, reducing stress, losing weight, and more. Welcome to the show. Welcome to the show. Welcome back to another episode of our Healthy Bites podcast. Today, we're diving into a crucial topic that affects millions of people worldwide, diabetes. With diabetes currently afflicting over 400 million people globally, it's essential to understand the steps we can take to prevent and control this widespread disease. But there is hope. Through lifestyle changes and early intervention, many cases of type 2 diabetes can be prevented possibly reversed. So we're thrilled to have Dr. Ruben Halperin, an expert in this field, joining us today to share his insights and knowledge. So let's give a warm welcome to Dr. Halperin and get started on this important conversation. Thank you. So you told me to call you Ruben, so I'm going to call you Ruben from here on out. Yeah. Prior to starting our recording, I offered you something to drink and I was tempted to offer you a diet soda, but I resisted because this is a talk about diabetes. And I know the debate rages on about the role of artificial sweeteners and impact on diabetes. I was wondering, do you have any opinions about artificial sweeteners? Yeah, actually, it's interesting because artificial sweeteners were originally sort of sold as kind of a, a beneficial thing for people with diabetes, a way for them to be able to, you know, participate in the typical diet without affecting their blood sugars by consuming sugar. But it turns out that that probably isn't true. They are probably not beneficial. There's a lot of research about what effect artificial sweeteners have on the brain, on appetite, um, even on glucose metabolism. And, you know, one of the things that's become obvious is artificial sweeteners tend to stimulate people's appetite because your brain sees this as something sweet and sweet things tend to stimulate our appetite. And so, when they when they've done studies, they've looked at people who drink diet sodas compared to regular soda compared to water. And the people who drink diet sodas eat just as much as as the people who drink soda with sugar. And in fact, there are there have been some studies showing that they actually gain more weight. So that's interesting. Yeah, I'm not a big proponent of diet sodas. I think I think overall, probably sweetened drinks, whether they're artificially sweetened or sweetened with sugar, are probably not a super healthy choice, especially for, you know, common consumption, you know, maybe for an occasional treat. But I am willing to bet 
Colleen would agree with you on this one. But Colleen, jump in with your own opinion if you want. If I if drinking diet soda keeps me from drinking the sugary stuff, would you say it's a healthier alternative? Personally, I would not say it's a healthier alternative. Uh, all right. Yeah, I don't think the I evidence. Quit the stuff entirely. I don't think the evidence bears it out. Yeah. And I think whether you're drinking a diet soda or a sugary soda, you're probably having the same effect on glucose metabolism. Hmm. All right. Hmm. I don't think that's going to be the the solution to preventing diabetes. And I think for people who are diabetic, um, it's probably marginally better than drinking an actual soda with sugar just because, um, you know, drinking a soda with sugar can put them in real, in real danger of severely high blood sugars. But again, not, a not a cure all. Fair enough. I would have to agree with you, Ruben. You know, there's these newer sugar alternatives on the market, the non-nutritive sweeteners that are considered, quote unquote, more natural, like the stevia, the monk fruit. That's a big one these days. And then the sugar alcohols, which I don't normally like to recommend because that can cause some GI issues. But I would have to agree all in all. Like, I don't think that is necessarily the solution to the problem. Ab absolutely. Yeah. I think artificial sweeteners um, or soda with artificial sweeteners as well as sodas with sugar fall into that kind of non-nutritive food category. And it's fine if people want to eat and or drink those occasionally, again, like treats. But when those are a regular part of your diet, you are doing damage to your body. There's no doubt. And I say this as somebody, it's not like I avoid sodas completely, you know, certainly growing up, I drank my fair share of sodas. So I'm not trying to be hypocritical here, but, you know, I think that we shouldn't fool ourselves that one is healthier than the other. Neither of them are a part of a healthy diet. Well, that kind of begs the question, if we're, if we're going back to the main topic today, winning the battle against diabetes. Ruben, how would you define prediabetes, borderline diabetes, and, and diabetes, and what are the, the health impacts of each of these conditions? Thanks. Um, yeah, so there are pretty formal definitions for prediabetes. Um, there are a couple different measurements of blood that we can do. One is called a hemoglobin A1C, and what that is, hemoglobin has an affinity for blood sugar. So when there's sugar in, in your bloodstream, it sticks to hemoglobin. And we know that hemoglobin cells live for about four months. So, so there's a constant turnover. So we can measure that. And it turns out that above 6.5% is considered diabetes. And normal is under 5.7%. So in between there, 5.7% to 6.4% is considered prediabetes. So again, the higher your blood sugars are running, the more blood, the more sugar will stick to your blood cells, and we can measure that. The other test that's commonly used is a fasting blood glucose. 
So this is the typical one where your doctor will tell you, I want to get some fasting blood test. And they tell you not to eat after 10 p.m. You go into the lab and you get your um, blood sugar drawn. Diabetes for fasting blood sugar is defined as over 126. So one um, between 100 and 125 would be considered prediabetes and under 100 so 99 or less would be normal. So again, it's all a continuum. And I think the important thing, the cutoff between prediabetes and diabetes is essentially an artificial number. It's, it's all a range. And once you start going above the prediabetes range of blood sugars, you're already starting to do microscopic damage. And so it's really important to address that and not ignore it. You know, I, the, the message is not, oh, you have prediabetes. You don't have to worry about it until you actually have diabetes. The message is you have prediabetes. This is a good time to start doing something about it before worse things happen. And what are some of those worst things that can happen? So diabetes is a really complex disease, but we know that having excessive sugar in your bloodstream can cause all kinds of damage. It can cause vascular damage, so damage to your blood vessels. It can cause damage to your heart. So people with diabetes are at higher risk of heart attacks. It can cause damage to your nerves. And we typically think of something called diabetic neuropathy, where people get nerve pain, in, especially in their feet. With, it starts in the feet because those are the longest nerves in the body. Diabetes is a common cause of blindness. It's a common cause of kidney failure. It is a common cause of other things that people don't really think about, but things like erectile dysfunction, um, skin problems. Mm. So, so pretty much yeah. every system in the, the body it affects. Every system, yeah. So waiting until you have diabetes and then managing it is not a great strategy. It's really, in a way, I tell my patients, if you're diagnosed with prediabetes, think of that as the early warning system. That's the time to do something about it. Mm -hmm. Awesome. So that actually leads well into... Another question, which if you are living in a closet, you may not have heard of this class of medications, but everyone else has probably heard of a fairly new kind of medication for diabetes management and now weight loss known as GLP-1 agonists. And these include medications like Ozempic and Monjaro, which is an even newer one. Yeah. And I am familiar also with the classic first-line medication for diabetes, which is metformin. And it's actually a medication that I've studied extensively because of its potential longevity benefits. I'm wondering if you have some opinions about these medications, what should we know about them? Great question. So first of all, it's important to um, come back to the idea of what, why do some people get diabetes? And when we talk about diabetes, uh, it's not 
all one disease. Commonly, people have heard about type 1 diabetes and type 2 diabetes. And what we're talking about now mostly is type 2 diabetes. Type 1 diabetes, what used to be thought of as juvenile diabetes, is an autoimmune disease that is more common in kids and young adults and happens after a viral illness. And we're not really talking about that because those are people whose their pancreas gets destroyed and they don't make insulin and they, they just need insulin. Type 2 diabetes is a much more complicated disease. It really has to do with what we call insulin resistance. So your body makes insulin, but the cells don't take it up well. Why? Well, one of the factors and one of the most important factors is obesity. And something happens with excess fat in the body that really affects the way that cells use insulin. And so what happens is it requires more insulin. And so insulin gets pumped out of the pancreas really aggressively and in order for the cells to uptake glucose. That's essentially what insulin is. Insulin is a a molecule that attaches to cells and allows for the transfer of glucose from the blood into cells. And cells need glucose. They use it for, for fuel. That's our primary fuel source. You cannot live without glucose. Um, so in insulin resistance, the normal amount of insulin doesn't do anything and your cells aren't getting glucose. And so your pancreas, which is on this feedback loop, is getting the message, oh, you need to put out more insulin. And so it puts out more insulin and it becomes this loop where more and more insulin gets put out and, um, you know, finally you need a really high dose of, of internal insulin to allow the cells to uptake glucose. Now, why is that a problem? So one of the things that, about insulin, insulin is a growth hormone. So insulin causes things to grow and it causes people to gain weight. In fact, um, when women are pregnant, the primary growth hormone that allows the baby to grow is insulin. So it's, a, it's what we call a, um, an anabolic hormone. It really, it really promotes growth and it tends to do that in adults too. So when you have insulin resistance and your body is putting out a ton of insulin, that's also causing you to gain more weight. So you get stuck in this loop of you're overweight, your body can't use the glucose, you pump out more insulin, which causes you to gain more weight, which causes you to need more insulin. It's, um, it's a vicious cycle. And so the first medication that really um, was created to address this particular problem was metformin. And what metformin appears to do is it affects the, it affects the cell's insulin sensitivity. It appears to make cells more sensitive to insulin so that they can take up glucose with lower amounts of insulin. And it, it was a hugely beneficial drug when it was developed. And, you know, it came onto the market in the 90s. And it had a couple of really amazing benefits. One of them is most people lose weight on metformin. And so losing weight helps you become more sensitive to insulin. And it, 
it makes it so you don't need as much insulin. The other thing it does by making your um, your cells more sensitive to insulin, it allows glucose to be taken out of the bloodstream into the cells where it's needed, and so it lowers your blood sugar. And so when metformin came on the market, it was it it was really a blockbuster. It it changed the game because before then we didn't have great treatments for type two diabetes. All we had was insulin, which helps but it's kind of the wrong solution because while it's helping, it's also perpetuating the problem of having too much insulin in your system. And then we had other medications, um, things like glipizide, glucotrol, these what we call sulfonylureas. And what those do is they stimulate your pancreas to put out more insulin. So again, they helped. Um, they helped you have not so high of blood sugar levels but they weren't solving the bottom line problem. So metformin was the first big one. In the last few years, um, we've we've had this class called GLP-1 inhibitors or GLP-1 agonists, I'm sorry. And the first one, the first one that came out was a medication called exenatide or Bieta. And these these are injections. And the first ones were daily injections and then eventually they came out with weekly injections and then the big game changer was a few years ago um a medication called semaglutide the brand name of that was ozempic and that was a really potent glp1 agonist and what what they found was that for a lot of type 2 diabetics it caused us really significant amount of weight loss in fact, it caused so much weight loss that a lot of these type two diabetics had to come off all their other medicines. So when they were on insulin before, they had to really cut back on their insulin and other medications they were on. And in fact, in some cases, they lost so much weight that they were actually um, able to move from the diabetic into the non-diabetic range of blood sugars. So... That sounds like a good thing. It, absolutely a good thing. And in fact, um, researchers and drug manufacturers took notice of this. And last year, semaglutide was reapproved for as a weight loss drug called Wigovi. So Wigovi, Ozempic, and semaglutide are all the same chemical. It's just it's just how they're marketed and how they're approved and what the in indication is. So Wagovi is the form of semaglutide that is approved for weight loss. And in fact, a lot of the trials looked specifically at people with prediabetes. And um, it was so effective that, you know, it was it was easily um, it was easily approved by the FDA. Um, so the question is going to come up like, wow, how can I get Wigovi? So mm -hmm. unfortunately, Wigovi is really expensive, um, about $900 a month. And for that reason, a lot of insurance companies are not yet covering it for weight loss. So almost, I, I'm guessing almost every insurance company is covering Ozempic for diabetes, but Wagovi, um, 
you know, it's going to take a little bit of time. And I think a lot of it has to do with how our society looks at obesity. You know, it took years before most insurances covered bariatric surgery, you know, weight loss surgery. And again, it's it it's that how we look at obesity. Do we consider it to be a disease or do we consider it a lifestyle issue? But I think the consensus in the scientific and medical community is that obesity is, you know, it's it's a disease like any other. And it really is not it's it's not about choices that people make necessarily. It's about in some ways it's it's about the way our culture deals with food and how we eat and how we live. And we can get into that more. But to answer your original question, how do I feel about these medications? Um, I think Wagovi is going to have a lot of promise. Um, the questions that are going to come up about it are, you know, how long do you need to be on it, for example? Because what we've what we've noticed with all these medications is there is weight loss while you're on the medication. Mm -hmm. But for most people, when they stop the medication, they gain the weight back. That's what I hear. Yeah. And what these medications seem to actually do is they they actually work in your central nervous system to really change your relationship with food and with hunger. And, you know, a lot of eating really has to do with the whole reward system and sparking dopamine. And, you know, we can get super political, but our modern food system is really about creating food that people want that really stimulates that reward system and puts out a flood of dopamine. So, you know, when you eat chips or cookies or candy, it makes you feel good. Like it really makes you feel good. And people have likened it to like taking hits of cocaine. It stimulates that dopamine pathway. And um, medications like Wagovi seem to break that relationship. And so all of a sudden food doesn't provide that same kind of reward and you can eat in a more sensible manner when you're hungry, for example, or you can make better choices about food, not such emotional choices. Mm -hmm. But, you know, it, it is a little worrisome. I, you know, are people going to need to be on these medications for life? We don't know the answer to that yet. They haven't been out, out around long enough. So we don't know if you can be on these medications and somehow retrain your brain or retrain your retrain yourself to eat in a in a certain way that avoids the problems you had before. Hmm. This, is, this is great. I appreciate what you're saying about how there really are forces beyond our control that influence our risk for diabetes. And while I admire one taking individual responsibility for the management of their health, I also can understand how diabetes is very much a disease of modern living, right? We have access, abundant access to really high fat, high calorie foods, highly processed foods. They're often the most convenient and the cheapest. And 
going to the dimension of physical activity. Many of us have jobs that are sedentary where we're behind a computer, we're at a desk. So there are disadvantages that we're dealing with on a community or population level perhaps that makes diabetes prevention, it makes maintaining a healthy weight difficult, more difficult than it used to be. Would you agree? Absolutely. It's a systemic issue, right? Because it's a cultural issue, not only for the food that we that we have, but the the stress, the stressors and the culture around the diet mentality. There's just there's a lot that's working against us. And I like what you said, Will. Yes, there is personal responsibility, but to a point, you know, there, if, if the system is set up to make the individual fail, then how, you know, how can we move forward? So it creates a big challenge. Oh, and I think it goes even way beyond our food system. Think about the way we live. How many people do you know that are able to live without a car, for example, and get most of their, you know, daily needs done? The reality is the way most of us live is we get up in the morning, we get into our car, we drive to work, we spend the day at work, we get back into our car, we drive home. If we need to go to the market, we drive to the market. I, I, I mean, it's not a coincidence. If you look at the rise in diabetes, it actually mirrors the rise in suburbanization in this country. And if you compare, if you compare us to countries where walking or biking is more the norm, we have higher rates of diabetes, we have higher rates of obesity, we have higher rates of chronic illness in general. And those are difficult things to solve on your own. I mean, you would have to make a really calculated choice and say, okay, I'm gonna go live in a city where I can live near a supermarket or near a farmer's market, where I can do all my errands by car or by bike. That That is really rare in this country, certainly. So that's number one. Number two, you talked a lot about stress. I, you know, especially um, this is a competitive society. And now with social media, you get to you get to see how great everybody else's life is. And you get to hear news 24 hours a day, which is always stressful. And I think those things have an effect. Um, you know, we we have seen over the last few years a real epidemic of mental health issues which you know contribute we have as a physician one of the most common complaints that i see is people coming in telling me they can't sleep and we know that sleep is actually associated or poor sleep is associated with risk of developing type 2 diabetes so so yeah i don't think saying I'm going to take personal responsibility and change my life is the answer on a public health level. I mean, we can all make changes in how we eat and in the amount of exercise we do. But I think I, I think there's a lot of there's a lot of factors working against that. Right. Let's just say. So what do we do? <laughs> <laughs> well, you got to start somewhere. And I think you know, the easiest place to start are the things you can control. So I think what you eat and the choices you make certainly are ways are things you can control. Um, carving out time to get exercise is something that you can control. Um, 
you know, trying to make sure you get a good night's sleep every night, limiting alcohol, which, um, again, alcohol is basically sugar. So, I mean, it's really, it's great tasting sugar and it makes you feel good, but it is sugar. And, and certainly, in fact, you know, there, there is a type of diabetes that is associated with, um, alcohol abuse because alcohol can damage your pancreas. And so over time it can damage your pancreas enough to the point where you no longer can make insulin. Maybe I'd like to throw in um, getting support along the way because, you know, it is really hard to break these patterns. And especially like you mentioned earlier, that the dopamine reward system, that is really challenging to work with. So doing it on our own is really, really hard to do. So reaching out for support, whether that is, you know, with a therapist or a coach or a mentor of, of sorts, a physician who can help you stay on track with the goals will help tremendously. Absolutely. So one other thing about eating that I think is really worth thinking about is this idea of mindful eating and being conscious about eating. And it's it's one of the reasons that people used to talk about trying to avoid eating in front of the television because you're concentrating on something else and it's, it's really easy to just mindlessly eat. Um, I think the bigger challenge now is cell phones and, you know, smartphones. Um, I read an essay about that. It, it was a doctor who was sitting at a restaurant and he looked around and every single person in the restaurant, even when they were sitting at a table with other people, was looking at a phone and eating at the same time. Mm-hmm. And I, I would be lying if I said I never did that because, you know, I'm not that different than anyone else. We all do. But yeah, mm-hmm. but I'm also aware when I do that, I, like my food disappears and I, I'm unaware of it. So, and it's not that different than you know, sitting at a movie with a bag of popcorn and a lot of candy. And before you know it, it's just all gone and you don't even remember tasting it. So being mindful, eating, you know, taking time to actually eat your meals. Um, I think cooking is actually a really important thing. You know, when you cook, you have a lot more control over what, um, what ingredients go in. And so, and also taking the time to cook makes it harder to like overeat. You know, it's the easier something is to prepare, the more convenient, the quicker you're going to get to it and eat it. I have so many things that I want to ask. I'm sure Will does too. Uh, Maybe we could touch on the technology. I'm curious if you see technology playing a role in helping to improve diabetes prevention and management, what you might've seen that's helpful, uh, anything like that around technology. Yeah, I think that's a great question. Um, you know, a few years ago, um, Fitbits started getting popular, and then um, i i watch or Apple watches. I've I got think, both. Yeah, I think um, having things like that has made people more aware of how active they are during the day, or how inactive they are, and I think it's um, it's one of those things that can sort of sort of force remind you to keep yourself active. I know early in the pandemic, I'm a big fan of David Sedaris. And I remember reading that he early in the pandemic was spending all this time walking, like walking the streets at night because they were so empty. And he had a Fitbit and he was 
racking up the steps and it became this personal challenge, you know, 10,000 steps and then 20,000 steps. And pretty soon he found himself walking, you know, incredible distances. And so I think that, um, it, it's another tool that can help people, um, you know, stimulate a certain behavior. You know, we all we all kind of like to challenge ourselves and we like to turn things into games. And certainly the Fitbit or the um, Apple Watch can do that by, you know, creating a, you know, a record of how much you're doing. Um, I think other kinds of technologies, certainly people, there's all kind of apps to track food and to track calories and, you know, to keep food, food logs for yourself. I know that um, dietitians are big advocates of food logs that it's, it's harder to lie to yourself when you're writing down everything that you're eating. And I've seen some apps where you don't even have to write it down. You can take pictures of the food and then the app will sort of, um, keep a record of what you've eaten. And so that makes it a little easier. And I think for all of these things, anything that can make it a little bit easier to like, you know, to be aware. And maybe that's, maybe that's sort of the key message here is eat mindfully, exercise mindfully, sleep mindfully. There are, there are actually great apps for sleeping also. I know that, um, there's meditation apps that people can get that can help with sleep to help kind of calm your mind at the end of the day. And I've seen plenty of studies now looking at these kind of apps that have actually shown pretty good results. So, so technology is kind of that double-edged sword. Like you, you can use technology to sort of be mindless. <laughs> you know, if you're, if you get too sucked into your, your smartphone, you know, to the point where you're just eating without thinking or just kind of going through your day without thinking. But on the other hand, you can also harness its power and, you know, do really good things with it. AI, artificial intelligence is the the topic of conversation these days. But I'm finding that AI can be really helpful for meal planning and for, you know, asking questions mm-hmm. around nutrition. You can uh, chat GPT, you can literally ask, okay, if you're a vegan, gluten-free, can't have onions, you know, anything specific, you type it in there, 100 grams of protein, it will give you, give you a meal plan for how many days that you request it. And it's not always 100% accurate, but it, it can do that for you. And uh, wow. I also saw that, you know, virtual reality is pretty popular, becoming more mainstream. And like you said, there are meditation apps and there's there's actual meditation VR. You can go into a space of meditation and feel like you're, you know, in the pyramids in Egypt or wherever it is you want to meditate. Um, and then I recently saw software that's specifically targeted for diabetes education and that you can wear a VR headset and you can actually see what it would be like to if you would start to lose your vision wow as a result of that which i think could be really impactful because if you're experiencing that versus someone telling you that that might be more motivating to make change oh wow that's see i think that would be really powerful that's amazing you know the other the other place that technology has really been kind of fascinating is in actual in actual medical care. So 
certainly for type one diabetics, we have insulin pumps right now so that people can really calibrate the amount of insulin they give themselves. There's continuous glucose monitors. There's actually continuous glucose monitors that can speak to the um, to the insulin pumps and basically function like an artificial pancreas. Most of those things are not covered for type two diabetes because um, type two diabetes doesn't have the same risks of really high and really low blood sugars that type one does. But it's it's likely that there will be more things like that where you know where type two diabetes can kind of have a more technological look. I mean, already a lot of type two diabetics check their blood sugars on glucose monitors and, and that's covered. And certainly type two diabetics who also take insulin are usually, um, able to get those things covered. Mm -hmm. So I think in the next few years, we'll see a lot more of that, a lot more, um, technological ways to really understand what's going on in your body, like in real time. I feel like we've barely just scratched the surface. Absolutely. <laughs> I can see us continuing this conversation in a future episode, but this would probably be a good place to wrap up for today's episode. Thank you all for tuning in to today's episode of Healthy Bites. We'd like to extend our gratitude to Dr. Ruben Halpern for sharing his invaluable expertise on prediabetes and diabetes prevention. As a reminder to our health plan subscribers, don't forget that you have access to health coaching for diabetes prevention available at no cost to you. This terrific benefit allows you to meet regularly with a dedicated coach. I'm one of them, so is Colleen who will support you and hold you accountable in making healthy lifestyle changes. So take advantage of this opportunity to invest in your health and well-being. Once again, thank you for joining us. Big thanks to Dr. Halperin. Thank you so much. Thanks, Colleen, for coming to hang out too. Stay healthy. We'll see you in the next episode. Thanks, Will. Thanks, Colleen. Thank you for listening today. If you're a Providence member and you'd like more information about your complimentary health coaching benefit, please visit ProvidenceHealthPlan.com slash health coach. We only take on a limited amount of members because it's so personalized, individualized, and tailored to your needs. So if you're interested, go ahead and visit that website today. 